The Blue Jackets want taxpayers to carry the flag. Reality bites the Senate budget, and John Kasich faces a fight before he can take on Ted. These topics are more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. WOSU TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Laura Bischoff, Statehouse reporter for the Dayton Daily News. Karen Kassler, Statehouse Bureau Chief for Ohio Public Radio and TV. Democratic strategist Dale Butland and Bob Clegg, Republican strategist. Welcome to Columbus on the Record. As predicted on this show last week, the Columbus Blue Jackets are looking for some government help. The owners of the Jackets are trying to convince lawmakers to pave the way for Franklin County to buy Nationwide Arena. It appears the Blue Jackets think their rent is too high. The dispatch reports the team has been losing more than $10 million a year. Under the plan, the county would buy the arena and pay for it by raising liquor and cigarette taxes. Needless to say, beer companies don't like this idea. Karen Kassler, the Jackets are floating, they're starting to float the idea they might leave town if they don't get help. Where is this going in the legislature? Well, I'm wondering what the environment is for a team that wants to leave and whether there's a town that will accept them. I know in the 80s and 90s it was totally different, and I know for many years in Columbus we were dying to have a team. But I'm just wondering if the environment is still the same for a team to make that kind of an ultimatum, so to speak. But there's a lot going against this. I mean, the reason it's Nationwide Arena is because 12 years ago voters didn't want to pay for the arena. And so I don't know if they'd necessarily go for a beer tax, which, as you mentioned, InBev and the beer makers and distributors don't like. And, you know, given how the city of Columbus income tax issue might go, who knows where this is going to go. But there is one thing. At the emotional loss, <laughs> if you lose a team, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, and I moved to Cleveland right after the team left, and there's something about what happens to a city and what happens to a fan base when you lose the team. And so I don't know if the Jackets have that fan base yet, but there's, that's a really strong emotional argument. Do they have enough, if they built up enough capital because of the success of the team and the arena district in particular to be able to push this through? Because without the Blue they Jackets... Got they got swept by the Red Wings. Yeah, I mean, okay. off the so, ice. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Michigan native, Michigan Laura Bischoff. <laughs> but I think there's a broader point here that you see, not just with regard to this particular issue here, but sports generally, Major League Sports generally. Sports is the only industry in America where the owners say, buy me a factory so I can sell you an overpriced product. It's ridiculous. Taxpayers turned this down by a fairly substantial margin just a few years back. I suspect they're getting sick to death of uh, these millionaires and billionaires holding cities hostage, saying, unless you give me more and more and more, I will move this team. I'm not sure that a National Hockey League team, by the way, has quite the same cachet as a National Football League team or a Major League Baseball But they team. could argue that they have had a very positive economic development. Like I was saying, the Arena District would not exist if it were not for the arena, conceivably. Can't they say, look, this is what we've done, and point to concrete results? Yes, but the problem is that 12 years ago, the voters said, we don't want to finance this. If you, you and the private sector want to do it, go ahead and do it, which they did. So why is the, once again, the taxpayer going to be the bailout option here? Uh, let's just put it on them when they were very clear. I think it's going to be a political hard call for the county commissioners to 
uh, if they get the authority from the legislature to institute these these kind of tax increases, I think it's going to be really tough politically for them to impose this kind of a tax on people who have already said, we don't want this tax. Well, and the, I was going to say not only that, but I think that a, a tax on beer and wine is a very hard sell in the legislature. The beer and wine in, uh, lobby is extremely strong. It's a, it's a, a uh, year after year perennial giver to uh, a lot of key lawmakers, and I just don't see that they're going to, you know, that they have a very anti-tax attitude right now, and I don't think they're going to say, okay, well, you know. We'll just do it. Well, it'll be interesting to see the support that the dispatch would give because the dispatch is a part owner uh -huh. of, the, of the Blue Jacket. So if they come out and, and try to push this as an idea that needs to go forward, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction would be then. What kind of lease do you think they're looking for from the county? I mean, are, we look, are they looking one? for rent-free? <laughs> stay in the, in the county-owned building? I mean, they're losing $10 million a year. The NHL is hurting. I, I bet it's going to get to that point. They're going to want a rent-free, you know, so that they can just operate and then hopefully be able to turn some kind of a profit. Should the taxpayer, but the NHL has made some very poor, not just the Blue, Blue Jackets have been selling a lot of tickets. I mean, last, for a few years they didn't do too well. They had a lot of seats empty. But the NHL is on a lousy TV network versus what they gave up, they, their ESPN deal. Um, they're basically disappeared from all but the hardcore fans. Should the, in essence, the taxpayers would be bailing out some bad sports marketing decisions. You know what, the Blue Jackets aren't all that different from a lot of the teams that are out there right now. There aren't that many teams on a professional level that make that much of a profit at all. Well, so many communities, it seems like, put that uh, sports franchises into development. I mean, like uh, Dale was saying, Nationwide Arena, you know, and, and the idea of would it be here uh, if we didn't have the team. So, you know, if you lose the team, you, you have a giant hole there in the major area of your city. And I, I just, there are a lot of cities that really depend on that. What do you think, Dale, what do you think Mayor Coleman said when he heard about this deal as he is trying to convince voters they need to raise their income taxes to avoid, we'll talk about this later, to avoid major cuts to police, fire, city services. And here's a proposal to raise taxes to save professional hockey. It w absolutely. I mean, I think this gets at the hypocrisy of the thing. Why legislators would consider raising taxes during a recession to, to, to fund a professional sports team when they say, oh, no taxes, so that we can help the disabled, the poor, the kids who are really suffering in this kind of downturn is ludicrous on its face. And I would say also, Mike, it's not just bailing out a sport that made some poor decisions met, uh, at the management level. I know there's some dyed-in-the-wool hockey fans in this town, but the truth is, Major League Hockey is a dying sport. That's why they're on a crummy television network, because they can't get a, a uh, uh, contract with one of the major networks. Well, well that's versus the reality. Versus sure. did give them a much better deal at the time. I think it was much better than ESPN was offering. So. Unfortunately for them, versus never took off. Well, as you they get more money, but less viewers. Exactly. That's the problem. Short-sighted. Yeah. Um, what um, school taxes is another issue. If it goes to a to a government agency, they lose the school taxes. That's going to have to be figured into the deal as well. And that's another potential point of opposition. If the schools are going to lose their money, they're they could come out and. You know, you teachers' unions, and, and uh, I mean, I think that any time you put a tax on the ballot and you have opposition to it, the chances of it passing are, are just really, really bad. What, why do you think this is happening now? I mean, Laura mentioned that they made the playoffs this year. This is their most successful season ever. <laughs> the Colts. Coincidence? When the Baltimore, Baltimore, when the Indianapolis Colts pushed, they tried for years to get a new stadium. When did they finally get it? When they were Super Bowl contenders and champions. The is Browns got theirs, you know, right at the same time the team was leaving. I mean, yeah. they were walking out the door, you know. Is it being, are the 
Blue Jackets trying to capitalize on their modest success, do you think? Or is it just? I think it's some of that, but I think it's more the, the uh, budget cycle that we're in. Because remember, they want to do this in the conference committee of the budget where things can be slipped in without anybody really noticing all that much. And that only happens at this time in yeah. June of uh, odd-numbered years. So it may be more that time. Apparently, it's not going to be in the Senate budget from what we were reading this morning. and what people No, but said. that was the plan. They wanted to try to you know, wedge it in there. Okay. Let's get to that. It's not the role they wanted, but Republicans in the Ohio Senate are playing the role of bad cop to the House and governor's good cop. Budgets proposed by the governor and the House were tight, but it's the Senate that was left with making the deep cuts after recent revenue projections show the state facing a $3 billion deficit over the next two years. Laura Bischoff, as we tape this on Friday morning, the budget, the details of the Senate budget have not been released yet, but it's can see that they got to cut a billion dollars from the from the house plan. Is that basic? Yes. Basic what you're hearing down there. And <laughs> yes. Where can they cut? Is there? There's not well, a whole you know, lot of room. You know, a billion dollars sounds like a a big. It's a lot of money, yeah. but uh, you know, it's a, it's a 54 billion dollar budget, so it's you know just a few percentage points. But so much of the budget is off the table, like Medicare and debt service and um, education. education. So. Um, they, you know, they only have a little bit of what they call discretionary spending, and it's and it's not so discretionary if you're, um, if you're uh, in, in need of mental health services or your child has developmental disabilities and needs to be ha have services that way. Um, so it's gonna it's it's gonna be kind of ugly, I think. If it fa if the if they face a three billion dollar deficit, why are they only cutting a billion? Because the governor and the House Democrats created this book of fiction. Okay. And the uh, Senate's not going to be the sole author of the nonfiction book. They're going to go so far, but they're going to bring back in the House Democrats and the governor to create the real world that they refused to look at and acknowledge when they were going through this budget in the beginning. Well, let's talk about the real world <laughs> and preserving <laughs> fictions. Let's talk about this. Part, the roots of this crisis. Obviously, the recession is a, is a huge part of it. But the other part has to do with, in 2005, when the Republicans, who ran every facet of our government, insisted on pushing through a 21% across-the-board income tax cut when times were good. We can't continue to demagogue this tax issue. Why did when the Democrats repeal that in their plan, then? Well, the House Democrats and the governor. Because it obviously, would be called a tax increase. It, obviously, but, obviously yeah. it's politics. That's yeah. the point here, <laughs> is that we continue to do this. Yeah. The governor and has embraced those tax cuts. Those are his tax cuts now. What? We had House Democrats campaigning last year, 2008, on those tax cuts, as, the, as it was their tax cuts, even though they all pretty much voted against it when they were enacted. They love those tax cuts, and they don't want to give any of them up. The point is, you can't cut taxes permanently when times are good, because you're setting yourself for a fall, setting yourself up for a fall when the economy sours, as it inevitably does. You can't keep telling people, oh, we will never, ever raise taxes no matter what. That's a fiction. Well, that, the governor's that changed we his mind on that. He admitted, and I think it was in Dayton, he admitted that they, he may have to you know, re, uh, revisit the whole tax issue. And well, the last have to five do governors, something. there's been tax increases under the last five governors with the legislature's yeah. support. Yeah. So when does that, if, if and when does that get floated? Does it get floated, and when does it happen? A tax increase, either delaying the rollback of the income tax reductions or I think a sales tax increase or something. I think it would have to be kind of a team effort. You'd have to see meetings where everybody gets together and talks about that this is our united front. I mean, I, you, you had a unanimous budget almost last time. And so 
that implies that maybe there's common ground here. But I think the only way that you can sell it is that everybody's on board, and that's the problem right now is everybody's not on board. And Karen's absolutely right. The only way you could do this, you get behind closed doors, you cut a deal, and you agree that neither side will attack the other. You can attack each other on other things uh, for 2010, but you can't use that. Is that likely to happen? I don't no think way. so. Well, but, but absent <coughs> that, then you need some political courage here. Somebody needs to step up and tell the truth. You can't cut your way out of this problem. There's simply not enough money Well, there. we didn't have, I, the problem we have here is the beginning budget that the governor gave us wasn't even truthful. I mean, he was in fantasy world somewhere, and this whole uh, plan that he came up for education was another fantasy thing with, it had more holes than Swiss cheese. And you know, and that whole education plan probably will come out without any resemblance to what it started at. And I think we're gonna be pretty much back to where we were with school funding. But I mean, we should have started this path a lot further down the road, like in maybe February versus we are now in, gonna be in June with a conference committee and we're gonna be staring at a July 1st deadline and everybody's gonna be scrambling. But we the numbers kept changing. I mean, we kept getting different numbers well, and the numbers we in April were different than the numbers yeah, that we were projecting. They weren't talking about the numbers and they weren't releasing numbers, so mm -hmm. it was hard to do that. Maybe we can all corporately agree, at least around this table anyway, that there are two things that could be done. Uh, first, Medicaid is the biggest single piece in the state budget. If you finally rebalance the long-term health care system in this country, which right now favors nursing homes rather than in-home care, 94 percent of Ohioans say they'd rather get long-term care at home than in a nursing home. And yet, we, uh, nursing home care is twice as expensive. And yet, we have this system, thanks to the nursing home lobby, which wildly favors nursing homes over in-home care. We spend uh, three times as much as other States, states yeah. do in terms of what we spend on long-term care. That's one thing. Um, so I think we should all be able to agree on that. And maybe the other thing is national health care. If well, we that's had a what national, Brown predicted this week would happen by the end of the year is that there would be some sort of national health care reform. That's going to cut down on the Medicaid expenditures as well, but big all, time. All likely it's not going to happen between now and June 30th. No, we can, we, we can agree on that probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's get to topic three. It's going to be a long, hot summer of debate for and against the city income tax hike. This week's headlines: Police Chief Walter Distel Swag predicts 300 officer layoffs if voters say no to the tax hike, and the city raised the possibility of what would amount to a backdoor trash fee. The mayors at Columbus and the suburbs should start considering shifting trash collection to Swaco which could then conceivably raise property taxes to pay for trash collection. Deb Butlin, first to the projected police cuts. Do you believe the chief when he says we're going to lay off 300 police officers, or is this, as some, as some have labeled it, a scare tactic? Well, I don't know that's a scare tactic. Um, I think that's probably what the chief has been told, is that absent uh, this tax increase, voter approval this tax increase, you're going to have to lay off this many. I think in the end it's not likely to happen because I think what voters want most of all is police and fire protection. Now the problem is that's 72 percent of the budget. So how do you cut your way? I mean it's the mirror image of what's going on here at the level of the state. You can't take the rest of it out, out, of, out of the 28 percent of the budget that's left. At least Mayor Coleman has had the guts to call for a tax increase, which a lot of uh, his colleagues at the state level have not had the courage to do. Looking at, these are very unscientific, but some of the polls on websites around town and the, the, the feedback from the public hearing this week, voters aren't sold yet. No, well, part of the problem that the city has is, number one, they are doing a scare tactic by uh, obviously concentrating and focusing on police and fire. And then at this first meeting they had, 
you had people, actual citizens, who asked a really interesting question, which was, okay, if we go ahead and vote for this thing, vote for this tax increase, are you going to guarantee that there won't be any cuts in police and fire? And they couldn't, they couldn't answer that question. Um, they got a problem here because uh, I, I think what's happening, people are thinking and they're looking at, at what's been going on in the last six months. And they look at government as always being there to somehow backstop and bail out. And I think people are thinking, hmm, do I really have to vote for this? Because if I don't, they really won't cut the police and fire. And, and the government, the federal government or somebody will come in. And, and they're talking about that with the state of California now. Somebody will come in and bail us out because we all have this bailout mentality. So, I mean, the city has created this situation. And I don't know what, what they're going to do about it. Well, I don't know that you can say the city has created. Here's the paradox, right, of government budgeting, is that the need for government services and spending are at their highest uh, during the economic downturns. In other words, exactly when government revenues need to pay for them are at their lowest. So at the federal level, we do counter-cyclical sp spending because you can have a deficit. You can't do that at the city and state level, but maybe that's something we need to look at because it's ridiculous to say, well, as the need for these services go up and our revenues go down, we're always going to be in this situation, and then you end up cutting 44, what was it on the pa front page of the paper yesterday, 44% cuts for some of the social service agencies. This is ridiculous. The trash fee, is the mayor onto something there by trying to regionalize it? That sort of lets the, each individual city off the hook as far as whether or not to impose a trash fee or Well, it is kind of a regional not. problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the Franklin County landfill. It's not the city of Columbus landfill. Yeah. And so to do that, and I think, you know, the goal of getting us all to, you know, get on board here, uh, it, it's really kind of to leave it up to people to say, here, pay this money and join, and then your neighbor doesn't. I mean, it, yeah. the, with the overall goal of let's reduce, reuse, recycle, you know, that that's probably at least... If, if you regionalize it, that certainly focuses it a little bit more. Okay. Certainly would be more efficient. Yeah. Let's get to our fourth topic. Former Congressman John Kasich is expected to announce on Monday that he is joining, officially joining the race for governor as the Republican candidate and challenger to Ted Strickland. But he's not the first. State Senator Kevin Coughlin announced earlier this year that he was running. And now he's saying he's in the race to stay, and he is politely telling the state Republican leadership to stay neutral in this race. Bob Clegg, John Kasich has to be the favorite, mm -hmm. but should there be a primary? I, you, you know, primaries are fine. I mean, I think they, they can be a healthy process here. Um, Kevin Coughlin is a uh, young, aggressive, smart uh, state senator, and he's got a great future. And, um, you know, John Kasich, I'm sure, doesn't mind having to go out on the campaign trail and campaign for this. So, uh, I mean, overall, I think it'll be a, it'll be a a good race. I don't know how much money Kevin's going to be able to raise, so I don't know if it's going to be a very high-profile race. I think uh, both of them will be hitting the campaign trail hard and will be hitting all the uh, Republican groups, but also a lot of citizen groups and, and all that. And I think it, it gives a primary gives a, the general election candidate time to prepare for that general election uh, race. And, and, you know, John Kasich hasn't done a campaign in about 10 years, so I'm sure he's more than happy to have to get out there and start, you said start word, campaigning. You said the word politely. Well, he, uh, Kevin Coughlin put out a <laughs> news release earlier this week uh, where he, uh, the subject line was Coughlin to GOP or Ohio Republican Party, butt out and let the people decide. I don't know if that's really polite. <laughs> but he could have swore. Well, that's true. That's true. And I actually talked to him that day, and he said something interesting to me in that he says that he and um, the former congressman, John Kasich, have the same problem in that virtually no one knows who they are. And so that is, I mean, when you look at the polling, it shows that, you know, people know who Mike DeWine is, who isn't running. People don't know 
who they are going to vote for. That was the other category that got a big uh, showing in the polls. But then people aren't real sure who John Kasich is, and no one knows who Kevin Coughlin is. Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, Republicans historically have really, really hated primaries. But if one comes along this time, and it's John Kasich versus Kevin Coughlin, no question, Kasich wins. He's going to raise more money. He's better known. He's the party favorite. And, he, uh, and he's a better campaigner. Having said all that, it's not going to be easy for John Kasich when he gets to the general election. For the, one of the reasons that Karen just mentioned, and I think Bob mentioned it too, he hadn't been on the ballot in 12 years. Well, he has two other targets. He worked for Lehman Brothers, and he's a yeah. commentator on yeah. Fox News. And Those are going to be two big targets the for the Democratic Party. And the best part on the Lehman Brothers thing is that Kasich can say, I had, of course, Lehman Brothers is the, is the corporate poster child for greed and mismanagement. Kasich can say, oh, I had nothing to do with that. But his title there was managing director. And years ago, before the crash, he was citing his work there as evidence of the kind of business expertise he could bring into government. So he's going to well, be hard for him to yeah, run away from you know that. what? It, what'll be interesting is Kasich's stock will rise automatically because Ted Strickland will have lost mm, three or four hundred thousand jobs here in Ohio while he has been governor. And it's amazing what double-digit unemployment can do for a Republican candidate when that governor is Democrat. Well, let's get to our last topic before we run out of time. Gay rights legislation and court rulings have been hot topics around the country, and here in Ohio, gay rights advocates are making progress pushing their civil rights bill through the legislature. They are hopeful of at least getting serious consideration of the measure, which would outlaw discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Laura Bischoff, what is giving them hope? Well, uh, they've introduced it um, in the last three legislatures. This is the fourth time around, and each time they get a little bit more, a few more uh, co-sponsors on the bills. Maybe they move. Uh, they actually have hearings. They hearing. You know, they might have two hearings instead of one. And uh, now in the in the House, House Bill 176 has. I think 27 co-sponsors. It's tw uh, 25 Democrats and two two Republicans. So, and they have the support of the Speaker. So they're fairly confident they'll get it through the House, and it'll be the first vote in Ohio history on a pro-gay rights issue, um, a f first positive vote. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to do very well in the Senate. Uh, you know, it, it may get a hearing, but I don't I don't see it getting a floor vote. Um, it's it's. Basic civil rights legislation, yeah. many companies, many, many companies, even this House and Senate have these rules. Why, it seems like a slam dunk. I think it might be useful for your viewers to understand what we're talking about. Right now in Ohio, it is perfectly legal to fire someone from a job or to deny them housing simply because of their sexual orientation. I think Laura's right. I mean, the, the movement on this gay rights business nationally has been incredible in the polls. Depending on the poll you look at, support for gay marriage is up to 45% in some polls. And even among people who don't favor gay m marriage, an extremely small number say that you should be able to discriminate against gays. Most people simply don't think you should be able to do that. Now, I realize the Caveman Caucus over in the uh, Senate and elsewhere is going to oppose this as special rights, but how in the world can anybody say that granting gay Americans the same rights that the rest of us take for granted are sp special somehow? You know what I think? I think this is an issue that could very easily just be put on the ballot and let the people vote. Why can't we do it that way? That's it. Why should we have to do it that way, though? Because why not make it part of the Constitution? Mm -hmm. If it's important enough, you know, then let's put, make it part of the Constitution. Let's put it on the ballot. It's the problem we have with gay marriage. How many, how many of these states now have gay marriage? And how many of those states actually voted by the people for that versus court-imposed 
uh, but let's distinguish. This bill has nothing to do with gay marriage. Oh, I know. And, no, no, and no, Ohio, we that Ohio, the Ohio has with with DOMA. And I, think, I think. I think this has to. This has. This is a, a civil rights bill that would uh, yeah, say you can't I, fire somebody or toss them out of their apartment simply yeah, because. Yeah, and of I agree with you in that it's not going to pass and become law, will mm -hmm. it? So why not go to the ballot? I do think it, it's going to get more and more support. If it doesn't, but it would be it, quicker to put it on the ballot and it become law that way, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. It seems to be the way that things have gone in the last couple of years. That yeah. if it doesn't go through the legislature, it goes yeah, through the ballot. Yeah, go on the ballot. I think that would be the quicker and the more efficient way to get it done. Okay, let's get to our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Laura Bischoff, you're up first. I think that with the GM and Chrysler restructurings, um, that it, it's going to mean that Ohio's economy is going to get worse before it gets better. So hang on. Okay, Karen. Well, Business Week this week ranked America's saddest cities, and uh -oh, Cleveland geez. and Cincinnati were on that list. And I think that right there is the reason why the Cavaliers need to win this thing. <laughs> really, we need to get out of the saddest cities, whatever that is, and, and get back. I'm a I'm not a basketball fan, but I'm a Cleveland fan, and I'm an Ohio fan. So okay, Dale. It may not be this year, but it'll be sooner rather than later that this gay civil rights bill we've been talking about will become the law of the state. Equal rights for gay Americans is the last great civil rights battlefield, and very few. Ohioans want to see people abused or mistreated simply because of their sexual orientation. And Bob? As much as we're talking about the problems with the budget right now, it's only going to get worse a year from now when the governor's going to have to put that fiscal year in balance. Okay. And in case you hadn't heard, Fred Anderley retired today, ending more than 20 years of service as WOSU Radio's voice of reason. And even though he only appeared on this show once, <clears throat> I'd like to thank him for his hard work, his dedication to WOSU and its audience. It truly has been, truly has been a pleasure working with Fred Anderley, and good luck. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue this conversation at our website. Our question this week, should taxpayers help solve the Blue Jackets' money problems? We already have one comment, even before the show aired. That's at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, thanks for staying up late. I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs> <laughs>